spinning Feel that adrenaline pumping Full throttle, wide open Love to hear that motor running Broken bones will heal But second place never will Gotta try it, high fly it, freestyle it, redline it, no fear, no worry, no guts, no glory. Rev it on up, push it till that engine. mud, a lot of dust, a little blood, and snow. Welcome back to the Snowbling Podcast. This is your host, Gorda Van. Today's episode is episode 39. Make sure you check out the, uh, the past episodes. We've got some great legends on there and um, some, uh, some great, uh, great stories. So this episode, uh, we got uh, Jim Kenninger and Greg Marrier, two uh, retired uh, Yamaha U.S. Uh, executives from uh, they started they started their uh, their career in the uh, in the 70s and uh, right through to uh, the uh, 2000s so there was a lot of development that went and went on in uh, in that era and uh, I, I knew these uh, gentlemen uh, quite well uh, during my trips to uh, to uh, test Yamaha products and uh, so um, great guys to talk to and I knew uh, I know they have uh, some great stories and uh, and uh, their involvement in the in the racing scene so I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, they uh, they talk uh, quite a bit about the development of uh, such sleds as the SRV, the Phaser, the Exciter, the VMAX 4s, the RX 1s, uh, the Snowcross sleds. Um, the um, and 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 we we, we daddle a bit in the uh, the new uh, the new era of uh, of Yamaha and the uh, the shared platforms and the uh, engine supplier agreement. So. Um, uh, some interesting stuff. They don't give away any uh, proprietary uh, information, of course. Uh, that would be bad for them. But uh, um, still, they're uh, very, uh, very uh, insightful in their uh, in their conversation with me. So, um, hope you hope you enjoy it. Um, if you need to uh, contact me, you can contact me at snowmobilingpodcast at gmail dot com, and uh, you can uh, you can find us on YouTube. Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter. You can find me on iTunes. You can find me on SoundCloud, um, the uh, Snowling Podcast Facebook page. Uh, like that because I put a lot of stuff on there, and uh, Instagram and I say uh, Twitter and and all, and all of them. So uh, they're all there. And um, I'm going to be sharing this uh, this uh, show over in my uh, my new podcast station. It's called Power Sports Online. Make sure you go over there and check that out. Uh, there'll be uh, other podcasts on there, uh, and I cover uh, ATVs, motocross, snowmobiles, uh, just about everything, and power sports. Uh, uh, a lot of products. I'm going to get a lot of some products in there. I got a new uh, show coming up, and um, interesting topic uh, uh, that I think you'll enjoy uh, coming up probably in the next week or so. I'm not going to disclose it now, but uh, it should be interesting. And uh, so check that out. Uh, it's called Power Sports Online, and uh, check out the Facebook page. There's also a Twitter uh, uh, channel, and um, 
Instagram. And um, yeah, I, I, uh, I was at a, a snowmobile drag race on the uh, on the weekend in Grand Bend, and uh, exciting uh, exciting uh, show that was. Uh, so I got some new videos on there um, from uh, Grand Bend, and um, hope you uh, hope you enjoy. There's a lot of pictures and some videos on there. So there's a little bit of a delay in there in the uh, interview today from uh, from my Skype. So uh, uh, we talk over each other a little bit, not as much as the last one, uh, but uh, still uh, we're still getting uh, that uh, figured out. So hope you enjoy this. We've got uh, Greg Mayer and Greg. Um, we'll get you started. Well, well, well I, I signed on to this so I could hear Jim's stories actually, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, well, Gord, what what I did was uh, I went to the University of Minnesota, and um, my family in Hugo had the uh, had a feed mill and hardware store and uh, lawnmower shop, and we got into selling snowmobiles back in 1964 with Articat, and then uh, that was when everything was sold through distributors, and um, you know the Toro or the different uh, companies that would call on you, uh, the distributor would also say, hey, I've got this snowmobile if you want to sell it it's kind of new but you can try it out so uh, my uncle got into that my uncle quint and and um they actually had uh articat uh, snowmobiles lined up in front and uh one day you know they were sitting there four of them and quint actually had to drive one away back out to uh, uh put it back in the store so it looked like we sold one well once we sold one then the neighbors come around and and they bought one, so then we finally started to, to sell snowmobiles. So that was a that was a neat time to see all the changes as it went through. Um, then we also sold Rups and then Chaparral and Wheelhorse uh, throughout the years. So I was heavily into the snowmobile side from a, a service side and some um, small town racing efforts back in the day. So I really wanted to do uh, be involved with the snowmobile industry. I went to. University of Minnesota in engineering degree graduated in 74 and um, actually I, I got a, a connection through one of the guys I was going to school with was Chuck Baxter's brother and Chuck uh, was uh, working in, in at Polaris at the time in sound control and um, I went up to Roseau to be interviewed from there I, I looked at a few other companies but I obviously wanted to work on snowmobiles it didn't matter about the town. It didn't matter about the location. It didn't matter about the brand. The biggest thing is that we yeah. involved on sleds, and that was a a great place to be. I started there in '74 and went up through '79 um, in uh, sound control testing, and then did a lot of uh, calibration work from being involved with the um, uh, dyno work. They had a lot of really good dyno guys, but then the uh, to get that dyno information out into the field with uh, calibration of clutching, calibration of carburation, and also uh, um, the basic heat testing was all things that I was involved in on field testing. Really? And what I liked about Polaris was that, well, at that time, you could pretty much, whatever you worked on, you could, you could uh, make it better because they were really rolling over the units every year there was brand new chassis brand new um sled and of course the race sleds would start on top and then move through all the way down into the uh, entry level eventually so so that was a great education for me i worked with a lot of really nice people uh solid people up at at uh, roseau at the time well 
I was doing um, sound testing, and we had a, a fast Fourier transformer machine, uh, which would actually measure the frequency, record the frequency, and you could actually see the the engine frequency or the sound frequencies. And I was using that to analyze exhaust systems, intake systems, sound testing. But the guys were were racing out the back with open pipes on the drag strip, and I could see the RPMs because the frequency obviously would depend on the sound that the, the cylinders are firing. So I told the guys at, at uh, racing that I could tell how fat, what their clutches were running. Well, they didn't uh, really believe that at the time because it was all new technology. And uh, I remember the time when, when Bert Bassett and Larry Ruglin went to the dyno room and they recorded without me knowing it, uh, a bunch of different RPMs on the dyno test, and then I had to go and tell them which RPM each engine was running. So uh, once I passed that test, then I got more involved with the racing side, uh, especially when uh, Brad Hewins and Steve Thorson came on board with Jerry Bunky. Um, at that time, then, they would carry a little uh, uh, data recorder, basically it was a tape recorder, a dictaphone, that I would... Uh, uh, put in their in their uh, uh, cha- uh, jacket, and then they'd go around the oval, and then I could come. They would give that back to me, and I would tell them what RPM the engine was running. And then uh, Jim Headland would look at it. He'd look at the spark plug wash, and then I'd let him know the RPM. He'd tell me if he was going to run a, a jet change. I'd tell him if I thought uh, we should run a, a clutch change, and then the mechanics and the racing guy would decide. Which way they're going to go? So that was a that was a fun time to be involved with the uh, with the racing guys at that time. See what what kind of recorder Sorry, is that about what you're looking for? Yeah, what what kind of recorder did did you put? It in was there? just a little. Yeah, go ahead. It was just a little dictaphone, which was just like a, a beginning of a. Uh, it had really small tapes, and then because of the temperature of the or the battery level would change the frequency, I would use a little pitch pipe to calibrate the sound and the tape recorder and then I could I could see if it was off a few percent in order to uh, to tell uh, um, what RPM they're running really the other interesting thing is I could sit on the side I could sit on the side of the racetrack like at Eagle River and uh, when the sleds would come and then they'd go you'd get a uh, a sound recording of the RPM and I could tell what RPM the competition was running too. <laughs> The interesting thing is like uh, Porter, Porter's engine at Articat, he always ran those engines way, way high, a lot higher than the, the other factory guys at Articat. Really? That's interesting. That's cool. Okay, um, Jim, um, yeah, what, the, what yeah. got you started? Uh, kind of um, very similar to Greg. Um, uh, we started off and uh, my, family, my, my family had... Uh, a small a small engine business, and they started off in the late '60s selling uh, ski daddler snowmobiles, <laughs> and um, that was in the late '60s. Uh, you can't imagine how many different brands uh, we were selling at that time: uh, ski daddler, Grand Prix, Chaparral. Uh, Snow Bunny. I mean, it was just um, there were just so many brands at the time, and uh, well, I guess the more brands they had, the more you could sell. And uh, so yeah, so we started off. Uh, I think I don't know. I was 
I don't even know if I was a teenager yet. I probably was just in early teens. And uh, uh, my dad sold a snowmobile to a friend of ours for racing. It was, uh, at that time, a race spec skedaddler. <laughs> uh, I think we had a 292 <laughs> race spec. Isn't that something back in the late 60s? And uh, so... Um, the guy said, hey, you want to race her? I go, sure. And uh, so, yeah, I was raised in junior class. And uh, but I, and, and the guy was the uh, the guy that uh, my dad sponsored at the time was uh, really, really, really uh, smart. And uh, he knew how to get things done. So he was making his own stud back in the late, uh, late 60s. He was punching the studs out and... Uh, he was a great tuner, so I learned a lot from him. And uh, so we kept on working at the dealership, uh, went through high school, and uh, when I graduated from high school, I uh, I knew I would be my my dream job was be to be working in the motorcycle snowmobile industry, and uh, that was my goal. And uh, I went back to the shop after high school, continued to work for my dad. And uh, or my parents, I should say, um, that continued all the way uh, until uh, '73 or so. '74, um, we took on Yamaha at that time, and uh, I got on the Yamaha race pro- program. Um, and we were working on GPXs at the time, and I caught the attention of. Uh, uh, the service people at Yamaha, um, you know, there was some issues back in the day, and uh, uh, I was lucky enough to maybe figure out what some of the problems were uh, at the dealership, and um, uh, that started a, a conversation with Yamaha to uh, work in their service department. And so I think it was 70, uh, this was 75, and then 77, uh I joined Yamaha mm-hmm. and I was a service rep uh, for them for about uh, five years in the service department and then moved into testing and racing and engineering and product planning and whatever else. Um, but yeah, so it started off at a family dealership, uh, working on all different brands, took on a Yamaha dealership. Uh, Found, found some technical issues uh, and uh, got a job with them and uh, stayed there for uh, 30-some years. Yeah, great. Okay, um, maybe I should go back and, uh, and, and tell the people uh, what, what your titles were at Yamaha. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, um, Jim, you were the, the R&D manager, um, and Greg, you were the uh, in charge of engineering R&D product planning. Is that, am, I, am I right or close to it? Well, uh, Gordon, I think we both we cycle through uh, quite a few different titles in the day. I think Yamaha's uh, direction pretty much is every five years you get to switch your switch your job or move around. Um, at least I started out as a um, R and D engineer in 1980, and then worked on uh, on that for about 10 years. Worked into product planning as one of the team members of product planning. Um, and I did, uh, during one of the 
the switches up of the uh, Japanese management at R&D. I did manage the R&D facility in Coon Rapids for a while. Um, I went into um, product planning, then marketing. I did a stint after we uh, uh, launched the the four-stroke. I went into marketing the four-stroke and product uh, marketing that. Went back into product planning. Um, and then uh, became uh, uh, racing after that when we started to race the, the four strokes and snowcross. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty much my my arc through Yamaha. Yeah, and Jim. Jim. Yeah, I was about the. Uh, I think Greg and I had some of the same titles. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, I started off as. Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> I started off as a service. <laughs> I started off as a service rep and then uh, race coordinator, assistant race manager, racing manager, uh, testing manager, engineering manager, <laughs> um, uh, R&D, and I think the the last title was uh, R&D and engineering manager, and that was in Monaco, Wisconsin. Yeah. Great. Okay, uh, Greg. Um, yeah, Gordon, Jim, Jim did a lot of. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, Gordy. Jim, Jim did a lot of uh, work at uh, getting the Monaco facility up and running too. I mean, he he was really involved on on that building they got there and the people that were there. He's been heavily involved on that, and and I worked with Jim a lot on on. Uh, he would do the engineering testing for the uh, support that for the Japanese guys that would come on board, but also he did a lot of development, especially I remember, Jim, you worked with Camouflast a lot on the tracks. Yeah, that was a, yeah, that was a big project uh, to get a, uh, a new vendor uh, into Yamaha, and especially a, a track vendor of all things. Uh, uh, it's a, a pretty important item, and, uh, and when you have Yokohama tracks for so many years, and uh, you want to you want to change it up a bit, uh, yeah, that was a pretty big undertaking. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's something like that. Uh, uh, a, a Japanese uh, manufacturer of a track at uh, that. I mean, you got, I guess you really have to really prove yourself to uh, to switch, uh, make a make a company like Yamaha switch to uh, to another track company. So. Um, yeah, so yeah, your previous uh, uh, testing facility was at Coon Rapids, correct? Yes, yes. Right, that was, that was the old Minnesota Dragways. Uh, they bought it there, and, and um, the, the racing guys actually used that facility a little bit. It, they had, uh, I think, 160 acres there, um, and then it became uh, an R&D facility and testing yeah. with a nice shop, nice building, and a good location. But eventually, it just quit snowing in Coon Rapids, and they were going up to Monaco all the time to uh, test anyway. And then, uh, and of course, Alaska and things like that too, up to Canada. But uh, the um, the Monaco or the uh, Coon Rapids facility was uh, was where I spent most of my 29 years at Yamaha was at the Coon Rapids site. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, okay. I'll start with Greg. Um, Greg, some uh, some some racing stories with the, with with the, with the Yamaha, and uh, I mean the early years of the seventies. The, the uh, um, you, you were involved in the racing program quite a bit, and and Jim, I imagine you were too, um, with the with the old GPXs and um, SRs and, and and stuff like that. Uh, you know, you had some great teams, a, a, a trickle, you had traps, uh, 
Um, what, what was the development like uh, back in those days of, of, of those sleds uh, from pretty close to production to uh, some pretty good, pretty good racing days? Well, that's actually, um, for me, for my racing time, um, was over at Scorpion. We went uh, with, uh, after we left Polaris, actually, Steve Thorson, Ron Roach, and uh, Brad Hewlings all went to Scorpion, and we and I worked there for a couple of years. It was as a hobby job. I worked, uh, you know, I worked my my manager testing for um, Scorpion during the day, and then went uh, worked with the racing guys in the evening. But when I uh, went back to Polaris, or excuse me, when I went back to Yamaha in 1980, that was actually when Gordy Metz and Jim Kettinger were really involved in the racing. So I'm going to pass it over to Jim. Yeah, I know he's been much involved in those early days. Jim? Yeah. Well, um, actually, I was racing, you know, I was good enough to know that I wasn't good enough. <laughs> but, uh, so I was racing back in. <laughs> so my racing career was uh, pretty short, but uh, I was actually much better as a, when I didn't know what I was doing as a junior driver than I did when I was older. But, uh yeah, so I guess my racing was, uh, uh, I was a support driver for Yamaha back in uh, uh, late uh, 75 through uh, 77, and then once I joined Yamaha, then at that point, he couldn't race anymore, um, and then I actually started in, in the race program in uh, 1980 uh, with the SR5, mm-hmm. and uh uh, we were on a development team uh, at that time. Um, so the development team was uh, Bob Work, uh, Ray Preble, uh, Mario Ito, and Kirby Sasaki. And then they ran the development team for the SR5, and Tom Berkeley, Gordy, and myself ran the uh, uh, support driver teams. Uh, for uh, cross country and lake racing back in, in those days, so basically racing for me at Yamaha actually started in the uh, at Yamaha started in the eighties, mm-hmm. um, and then as that went on, uh, we ran SR fives for years underneath the race program, uh, developing the uh, SR five, and uh, yeah, I mean we had uh, some great drivers back then. Uh, Mario Ito was uh, uh, the only Japanese driver, but he spent all winter over here, and he actually worked out of the R&D Center in uh, Minnesota. Um, yeah, from there, uh, you know, we started getting into oval racing. We, we offered a wide front-end kit for the uh, uh, SR5, and then the phaser came out, and that put Yamaha back on the uh, on the map in the racing, uh, um, you know, between Tim Bender, Bobby Donahue, uh, Jim Morgan, Guy Uselinger, Steve uh, Steve Hool, uh, those were uh, those were days you just can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, having uh, a great, great, great uh, racers and uh, and the product being as good as it was. Uh, yeah, it was a uh, cloud nine. Honestly, it was just a lot, a lot of fun. Yeah, those are and, those are. Those uh, are those you didn't are, worry about too much then. 
Yeah, those were those are good. Those were good days. Oh, I, was go ahead, the, I was I was on the SR five myself, and um, um, yeah, it was it was, uh, it was it was pretty amazing. Uh, this, uh, this little production sled was uh, doing so well against some some pretty tough competition on uh, in the uh, in the, uh, the, the, the other OEMs, and you had the. Uh, you know, uh, you know, pro stock days where uh, I mean, you were you you there you'd go to a race and there'd be over a hundred pro stock sleds uh, down down to uh, seven eliminated down to seven, you know, kind of thing. And uh, the Yamahas were well representative in a, in a lot of those finals. And uh, Tim Bender was always was always one in the uh, was always one of them. Um, work, working with Tim, um, how much how much how much was Tim involved in the actual factory um, for racing? In the, in the on the SR5 project, I would say Morio Ito was more involved in the very beginning, um, and then Tim got involved um, when we started the uh, wide front end kit stuff in '83 or so. I think it was '82 or '83. Um, so he had a wide front end kit he was making, um, and that kind of helped put Yamaha back uh, back in the racing. Um, you know, to see some initiative out there with somebody having uh, um, somebody that wanted to do it and wanted to race Yamaha. So Tim put a, a big step forward and uh, brought in some good ideas with that. And uh, uh, and, and that just grew. And, and the other thing was happening at the time, we were really trying to prove TSS was as good as any other independent front suspension. And... Well, at the time, we really did think it was. Mm-hmm. As as time went on, things changed. But uh, at the moment, it, it was the best, and uh, uh, it allowed for some um, different chassis layouts, and uh, there, there were some benefits for TFS for sure. Yeah. Um, and with Tim's capability, we really did get a TFS suspension to work really, really well. And uh, Yeah, so that's how it started with Tim. Um and that went all the way through. Tim ran TSS suspensions all the way through uh, to the nineties. Um, the VMAX four, yeah. even on the VMAX four. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Tim was a. Um, and as Tim, as the time went on, Tim grew more and more into uh, uh, into our race program and into uh, uh, helping us with the uh, race sleds and uh, yeah, I guess in. Um, we won Eagle River in, uh, with an exciter, and we came home from Eagle River. We had a prototype VMAX 4 chassis, so this was in January, and we started the VMAX 4 uh, development two days after the Eagle River ended, and uh, so we were ready for the following year. And uh, so we had the engine location all finalized for Formula 3, the uh, where the front suspension was going to be, so it was a yeah, Tim was a, a, a key part of that. I guess it was. I guess it must have been pretty easy to uh, convince the uh, y- Yamaha uh, Corporation to uh, to develop a, a a racing kind of a racing sled when uh, when you got that when you're when, when you're winning races like Eagle River and uh, and a lot of other important uh, oval races in, in, in North America. It's, it, it must be pretty happy days when uh, you can report back to the big corporation that. Uh, you know, you just won the biggest race of the year, and uh, you know, can we have some more money for some more development for for for, for upcoming Formula Three season? 
Uh, Gordon, even winning, uh, money is always an issue. Yeah. <laughs> even you win the biggest race the next year, if you start from square one again. Oh, really? Start from zero, eh? I think, I think Greg can testify to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Greg. the biggest the biggest thing about uh, yeah, that's right, Jim. The biggest thing about Yamaha, the, the challenge there is that the, when you're in product planning, you're planning out three to five years away, and you assume that uh, you know you predict what the competition's going to do, you predict what the customer's going to want, but the hardest thing to predict is what the dollar yen is going to be. So um, a lot of things that. Uh, that we developed and, and Jim was heavily involved in, in all this stuff was when it gets to the table, does it come out for sure or not? Because uh, the dollar yen, when I started at Yamaha, for instance, was 330 yen to the dollar. Well, when I left, it was probably 100 yen to the dollar. So that's basically means that, that it's three times more expensive. So that part was, uh, was the challenge when you're looking at product planning and, and the budget is always, uh, is always part of that calculation. So yeah, Jim, you're right. Uh, you know, Eagle river is a, always meant a lot to, to the, uh, to the upper management at Yamaha, especially from uh, a lot of people don't know this, but a lot of the, the guys that, that actually ended up running Yamaha as president came up through the uh, R and D side of Yamaha um, and those guys developed uh, new product development, like the, the uh, Toyota uh, 2000 GT. Um, TJ Hasegawa, for instance, uh, worked on that as a as a young engineer. And then you go up. The snowmobile group started out of out of new development. Golf car group started out of new development. A lot of these new business development groups. Well, when you go over to Yamaha and uh, and and, and when I would go over there for product planning or for the meetings, you'd meet the president. And especially I remember TJ Hasegawa would always ask about uh, snowmobiles because that was one of his, his early early loves. And uh, um, I know that uh, they, they had uh, Eagle River, especially back when, uh, when the traps were running there, meant a lot to the upper management. Isn't that right, Jim? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, Craig. Uh, uh, the snowmobile group uh, inside of Yamaha. Uh, boy, I think I don't know how many top management people came out of the snowmobile group, um, which is kind of uh, strange for a, a motorcycle company. And there's all the motorcycle engineers, and here upper management is uh, all started in snowmobiles. So. Uh, you know, I think it was because they understand the market competing against U.S. companies, uh, Canadian companies, and, um, you know, they, they became very well-rounded um, uh, people. They had a lot of uh, experience uh, uh, worldwide. So uh, I, I think that's you – know, and plus they were smart. I mean, they were just uh, – and most of them came from engineering, and so uh, – yeah, it's a, it's kind of strange that a, a motorcycle company, upper management, most of them came from the snowmobile division back in the day, yes. Really? Um, one question I think a lot of people would like to know about uh, Yamaha snowmobiles is how, how much, uh, on a percentage scale, how, how much is really um, engineered and developed here in North America uh, versus uh, uh, Japan? Like, uh, if, if there's a percentage... Uh, 
Um, what, what's the development uh, for for, uh, for a, t- a typical Yamaha product? And we're talking the Japanese brand uh, models right now. Uh, for I'll go back to um, uh, when I left. Um, it, back in back in the eighties and nineties, um, uh, all the engineering was done in Japan. And all the product uh, testing and uh, confirmation specifications um, was then done between the U.S., Canada, and and Japan. But uh, so back in the '80s, all the and, design and work and uh, yeah, in Europe, yep, um, was all done in, in Japan. And then the U.S. and Canada were there to uh, help finalize the specifications and, and sometimes the design. If a prototype came in, we were testing prototypes and we could see there were uh, some issues. Um, you know, it's great to point them out uh, and if you had uh, uh, confidence in what you were saying and, and you could back it up, uh, uh, changes were made based on those test results here in the U.S. But, um, but most of the engineering at the time back in the 80s uh, 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 in early 90s was in uh, Japan. And then it slowly moved. Uh, there was some prototype stuff made in the U.S. Um, well, struts, struts came out of R&D, right, Greg? The TSS yeah, came out uh, right, with an FTC and the R&D team. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, yeah Jim, uh, the R&D site was... Uh, there's an R&D California and R&D Minnesota, and the R&D Minnesota was, was the idea was to, to do research and development of prototyping, early prototype development inside the marketplace. And there were key uh, Japanese engineers and management that would run the facility and, and uh, you know, communicate back and forth to Japan because, obviously, the core engineering is all done in Japan. That's where you have to build stuff for production. That's where you have to schedule. That's what you have to build the prototypes and all that, or excuse me, the pre-productions. That's really the strength of Yamaha was their manufacturing capacity and their design capacity uh, back in Japan. But uh, I looked at my role in R&D and also the R&D Minnesota role. For instance, Casey Yoshida was the uh, product manager uh, or developed the TSS, uh, Toshi Asui, worked on the uh, pro-action rear suspension. Of course, it was not just him or them, but also uh, key technicians uh, that worked at R&D Minnesota that also developed uh, Kirk Boyer, uh, Wayne Wernke, Doug Foote, uh, Randy Karpik worked there for a while. Um, those kind of uh, support people would also give their input. And uh, by doing that, you got a good uh, a good cross-section of, Cross fertilization of ideas, um, and we could test right here in the U.S. Run on U.S. trails, um, you know, and understand the the U.S. customers. So, a lot of the things that that I did, I did some clutches, I did some pro, uh, complete machines, um, some some rider forward work, some uh, trailing arm uh, front suspension work. A lot of that was done to help uh, understand uh, the the value, and then communicate that back to um, the the engineers back in Japan and the product planning people, not only in the U.S., but also the product planning people in Europe and 
and Canada so that we would have a clear idea of which way we want to be in five years from now. So it's a lot of joint effort, but the heavy lifting as far as engineering goes was was done in, in Japan, there, especially for production. Was there was there any sled that came across your uh, your board um, in the uh, in, in the eighties, I guess, uh, in late eighties and something like, like that, that that Japan may have uh, developed, and it came across your your board in, in sketch or in in three uh, uh, D, and 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 you guys kind of looked at it and said, huh, that's that's that's, that's interesting, or that that won't work, or or is there something? Is there a sled like maybe the the VMAX four with the four inline engine kind of thing that that, that surprised you when uh, when you seen it uh, for the first time and, and or heard about it? Um, was there any, was there anything that really stood out um, that that was maybe exciting or maybe thought to yourself, well, that that, that won't work? Oh, Jim, why don't you take that one? I'll, well, I'll, I'll answer after you. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll probably have the same answer. Okay. Yes to everything. <laughs> there was uh, there was things uh, that uh, uh, Yamaha was really good at prototyping stuff and getting a, a direction and uh, and getting a feeling. Um, after they built the prototype and they brought, you know, uh, the Europeans and the Canadians and the guys from the U.S. and, and did the evaluation. Um, yeah, there was things that uh, never flew in, and there was some stuff that when you first looked at it, it looked a little strange, but uh, it, did, it did end up working out really well. Um, um, yeah, I'd have to. The one that reminds me the most was the monoshock rear suspension. I mean, that was kind of a later project that uh, the idea came from uh, from uh, a guy in Japan, uh, Fuasawa, and uh, oh, I just lost the other guy's name. But anyways, uh, uh, Thomas Inamura. In yeah, Imamura, yeah, straight guy. Um, and we, we did the development in the in the U.S., and there was uh, a suspension when you first looked at it, and, and they gave you the uh, uh, the background on how the uh, how the suspension works. Um, I've never driven a machine that you could go so fast on and and not realize what you were going over. Mm-hmm. The only problem with it at, at the early stage, you could go so fast, and it had all the travel in the world, but as soon as you let off the throttle, you lost half of your travel. And all of a sudden, those big bumps were bigger bumps. And uh, so, if, if you did, if you were fearless, the thing was absolutely uh, fantastic. But as soon as fear set in, oh my, it was nasty. Yeah. But, um, so there was one of those projects that uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it, but, you know, it went through development and it got better and, and uh, ended up being one of the best suspensions. Uh, uh, I think Yamaha put on the market, but yeah, we had all sorts of stuff. The first phaser, the body design. Um, of course, the guys in testing didn't know some of the designs, but uh, uh, yeah, there was all sorts of stuff that uh, Yamaha wasn't afraid to try. Um, you know, with snow scoots and uh, inviters, and uh, you know, they weren't afraid to develop the market and. Uh, 
and grow the market. So we, we had all sorts of stuff, and, you know, there, the snowsuit's a perfect example, maybe a little bit before its time. Um, Inviter was something brand new. Uh, so, yeah, there was things that uh, came through it with that maybe, maybe uh, you didn't think were going to work and it ended up working fine. And then there was stuff that we worked on that maybe we should have made <laughs> but because it was before the market was ready for it. But the uh, Yamaha never sat back. They were always looking forward. Yeah. Is that about right, Greg? Yeah, Jim. I, I, see, I started in 1980, and at that time, you know, the, the industry was kind of tough in a um, situation. You know, Articat had, you know, was gonna when the gas crunch hit. Articat uh, had a tough time. Um, Polaris had a tough time, and uh, Yamaha became number one at the time when the um, the phasers were being built and things. And part of what what the goal was from Japan in to R&D was to grow the snowmobile market, bring in new customers. And that was why uh, Toshi Yasui, for instance, uh, worked on the Inviter. We worked on side-by-side uh, -side, uh, um, snowmobiles we, that didn't go into production. We worked on uh, um, small machines, a lot of small machines that eventually became the snow, snow scoot. Um, Herbie Sasaki was involved with that. Toshi Yasui was involved with that. Those are people that had been spending time in the U.S., um, throughout their young engineering time, and then they'd go back to Japan and they'd uh, bring up these projects and, and bring them into production. But uh, the goal there was to grow the U.S. market, the snowmobile market, bring in new people, and um, you know that was a tough, a tough way. It ended up that the best way to to grow the market was to uh, you know build more powerful machines and um the the phaser the inviter excuse me the phaser the exciter the exciter sx all those were towards that direction um back back then the performance was was the key mostly top speed and then as sleds got faster and faster powerful uh then acceleration became more the uh, top the top uh, satisfaction and then ride quality became uh a better uh part of, of customer desire. So all those things uh, we would work on in R&D, um, communicate that through product planning. Now, Jim and I were both uh, involved in product planning, so it would be really early in the, the sketch stage and the dream stage. We would drive some prototypes. We would evaluate them either from Japan in, in, uh, um, in Hokkaido or else uh, in different tests with uh, with the other product planning people from around the world um, and give our, our opinion. So even when there were germs of ideas, uh, beginning ideas, we, we were lucky to get the chance to, to see and develop. Um, I can, you know, I can remember a lot of things that, that as a, as a snowmobiler, we thought, well, that would never be needed. But, uh, but as we went on, um, yeah, the customers actually wanted it. A long travel was one where, um, like Jim was talking about, a lot of long travel suspensions could get kind of funky on handling when you're letting off. But really that was the, it all had to be developed and worked on to be a total better all-around package. And, um, you know, if you're a, a hardcore guy that loves the way the SRX handles, gets a lot harder to, to ride something else that's, that's, you know, another three inches higher in the air. 
So that part we, we learned as the customer changed and, um, and developed and, and some things worked and some things were early and some things we came out too late. But uh, I really have to give it to the fact that the interesting part was seeing all these ideas grow and build and become uh, something that you could introduce to the dealers and introduce to the customers. Yeah. What uh, what role did ATVs play in the part of snowmobile? Because in, in the 80s, um, again, uh, snowmobile uh, design and, and engineering was 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 going crazy. But then a- these ATVs, these three-wheelers and four-wheelers started to come in. What, what, what role did Yamaha, um, w- w- was it uh, tough times, uh, you know, engineering the both, both uh, recreational uh, sports uh, at, at the same time? Because both kind of came in pretty heavy at the same time. Well, Gordon, what, uh, when, I, when we were in R&D, there was, yeah, I'll take it, Jim. When we were at R&D, there was another group of, of guys in R&D Minnesota that worked on on um, three-wheelers and eventually developed uh, the four-wheeler for Yamaha. And that was uh, Jim Grindy and Doug Foote worked primarily on that side. Um, and that was a really interesting time, um, the the. The uh, marine, the marine side was developed like the uh, Wave Runner that was developed out of R&D California, but the um, terrain stuff like the, the ATVs and the snowmobiles, the guys in Minnesota had uh, had something to do with that. Um, so the first four wheeler was developed for Yamaha that I know of was developed out of R&D Minnesota as a prototype. Suzuki had already built the the uh, the four their four wheeler. But um, the guys at Yamaha worked on it in, in uh, Minnesota. They also built uh, a prototype that had a, a power takeoff that eventually became the TerraPro. Um, so that new product development side that we talked about earlier, Jim and I talked about how the the um, there is a, a, a hard uh, a hardworking group of people to develop new products for Yamaha. That was done. Um, that was also done through these R and D sites across around the world, R and D California, R and D Minnesota, plus the guys in uh, in Japan, of course. So, um, did they compete? No, I don't think they competed against each other for uh, for um, manpower. Um, at that time, the um, the growth was good, and, and actually, it was really nice to have a product partner for the snowmobile uh, factories to also build products. In the in the off season, for instance, yeah. uh, in Yamaha's case, they built golf cars and snowmobiles on the same line back in the day. Yeah, um, uh, percent, percentage percentage wise of, of snowmobiles and ATVs, I guess it's just a fraction of what their motorcycle divisions are in, in Japan. Um, um, does does is Yamaha still pretty excited? Uh, I, I guess uh, what we're t- talking about uh, your your era, yours and Jim's uh, era. Um, but were they still pretty excited about snow, uh, developing snowmobiles back then? And uh, um, now it's different. But uh, back then, um, I mean, they were producing millions of, of motorcycles compared to a small amount of uh, snowmobiles and ATVs. Um, w- w- was there always a, uh, I guess a, a discussion of uh, of where the priorities were? 
I'll, I guess I'll, I'll start off. You can fill in some of the spots that I'm going to miss probably. Okay. But um, I'll go back from what was mentioned before with uh, when we were mentioning upper management came through the snowmobile division. Um, so we kind of have a we kind of had an end. They had a passion for it um, for snowmobiles and. Um, and they had a good taste of leading the market in a couple different times. Um, even though the business might have been uh, small, um, smaller than the uh, motorcycle business, the snowmobile business allowed them to do to do things that the motorcycle business wanted. And that would be, number one, you're competing against U.S. and, and uh, Canadian companies where the motorcycle business back in those days you were competing against other Japanese companies. So that kind of made them more worldly, and um, they kind of opened up their sights a little bit. So um, they, they found out how to compete uh, against different uh, different countries. So I think they, the, the reason the snowmobile business uh, continued to always get um, – attention uh, and budget and uh, uh, direction from management was, one, is there was a heart for it, and, two, it opened up the uh, how they competed against different companies. So, uh, and, then, and then the division took on our, the Soulville division also had ATVs, and uh, so that business was growing, and we were competing against U.S. companies there. So I, I think it did them a lot of good. Uh, on the overall business, even though it's not the biggest part of the business, it, it taught the company a lot. Mm-hmm. Greg, what do you think? Yeah, Jim, I think that was that's very important. And then the other thing that that I remember, um, you know, hearing a lot about was was the one thing was was that Honda didn't have a, a snow product or as much diversification as Yamaha did back in the 90s. And, and, and it was really about supporting the dealers. And that was really important back then to have a, a full line so that you had a, a summer and winter product. Um, so that was, that was important uh, differentiation from Honda when it came to dealerships. Um, back then, there was a lot more single-line dealers. There wasn't as much mix of multiple brands in the same store. So um, that was a, a critical thing, especially the guys up in Yamaha uh, Motor Canada really um, enjoyed an advantage to be able to sell uh, um, the Yamaha product year-round. So um, it also diversified um, Yamaha from, a, uh, like I said, the product partners to be able to build offline some other products, ATV and and snowmobiles was a, a key product partner. Um, they actually had the, I think it was third engineering group that, that was involved with both. And, and, uh, Gord, Yamaha is such a big company that, uh, um, I mean, uh, that the whole point was it's big enough as a standalone company. We sold a lot of ATVs that bigger than some of our competition totally, or we sold obviously motorcycles is a, is the heartbeat of Yamaha, especially, uh, uh, engine development. But, once uh, once you get into each group, they all stood pretty much alone as far as uh, as the budget, as far as the business plan, as far as the uh, manufacturing uh, negotiation with getting the factory space. Um, it, they were really uh, 
made Yamaha stronger in the, from the dealership all the way up to the factory. Yeah. So I think uh, I think that was a, a, an advantage for Yamaha at the time. Yeah. Okay. Um, so um, I guess I guess we'll, we'll, we'll I guess we'll move on to a little bit more current. Um, items and uh, we'll go back a little bit. So both of you were involved pretty heavily. I guess uh, Greg at the, pretty much at the end of your your career at Yamaha, but with the Snowcross program, and um, you, you, you had uh, pretty good success uh, uh, with the four stroke, and maybe surprised a few people and shocked a few people. And uh, but uh, for Yamaha with um, the, the Snowcross program, and I guess Greg, you kind of uh, and Jim, you kind of led that that program. Is is that correct? Yeah, Gord, uh, Jim was really involved in building the, the early prototypes. Go ahead, Jim. Well, I was just going to say, Greg, uh, I started at the beginning. You you kind of finished up on the uh, end of right. the Snowcross four-stroke program. So I'll let, I'll let you start first. <laughs> oh. Well, we uh, um, in product planning, we were working on... Uh, on the the four stroke introduction, obviously with the uh, RX one, and there was a big uh, uh, discussion among the different product planning people. So I'm going to go all the way back to when we decided to go four stroke. A lot of that was related to the EPA and the regulations that were on the books at the time that would make uh, uh, two strokes very difficult to do. Um, Yamaha was watching the other brands were were playing with with four strokes at the time. Um, a lot of uh, uh, what I'll call super utility models were uh, what was being built, and they were using the engines that they that they had access to. For instance, the uh, uh, Articat with the three cylinder that was automotive based um, from Suzuki, and then the turbocharger on it to get it to have enough power. Um, so there was also uh, uh, an interest from Europe and Canada on being strictly a utility um, product. So in in final product planning, we decided to go after performance and, and uh, really used our strength with the uh, the four cylinder RX one, which was based off of the FX one motorcycle, um, and built a sled around that around that uh, concept. And that really uh, gave some perform- uh, performance image. It sounded cool. It, it worked well. Jim was heavily involved on the testing of that direction. And then, um, so that was launched. And after the, the, uh, that part was building the four-stroke performance image, rough trail concept and, and uh, bump racing was also a big deal uh, in the... Uh, time at that time, so we had to take four stroke into the rough trail enthusiast uh, era, and uh, by doing that was another challenge, and it would take another engine and another another chassis, and that's where Jim was involved with R and D up in Monaco on building up uh, concept products to see if we could take uh, the the uh, existing three cylinder engine that was used in the in the vector or the out of vector um, and make a, a a bump sled out of it. So Jim, why don't you go over a little bit of that um, with the work that you were doing with R and D up in Manaqua? Oh, okay. 
Okay. Um, I guess it, I'll, I'll guess I'll go back a little bit farther. When we did the uh, XR RX one development, uh, we did all the started the development on two stroke engines, and then we would put different weight on the machine. You know, because we kind of knew the exhaust system was going to be in the back, so we would put weight in the back of the sled, and we would uh, fuel test. Uh, those sleds collect the information we needed um, to help set the plan for the uh, four-stroke, final four-stroke uh, direction. And so we had a lot of data, a lot of information from all the uh, pre-work we did on when we developed the RX-1. So when we developed this first Snowcross uh, sled, uh, we used that kind of information from from uh, from our pre-testing and it gave us the help us set the direction for the snowcross sled. So we, we knew we needed to move the weight around a bit. So um, exhaust system, location, weight, uh, engine position, uh, uh, front suspension design, all that uh, played a, a role, but it, it started actually three years prior to that, even maybe longer. So um, that set the direction for the chassis. Um, uh, yeah, we tried all all sorts of different suspensions, and uh, and we wanted to try to use the same uh, suspension as uh, uh, we are currently making on the uh, RX1 and, and the Vectors. So that kind of put us in a box a little bit, but eventually we moved away from that. I think that happened later with Greg, but um, yeah. So the, it started off from the RX1 pre-testing that helped set the direction for the. Uh, uh, vector engine snowcross program, and I think that's when we had uh, Jesse Stragi uh, help doing the development work, and um, that helped out a helped out a lot. Um, uh, from there, uh, Greg uh, took over the program, and uh, and it made a lot of changes. Um, uh, the factory got more involved. Um, so, Greg, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, okay, Jim, thanks. Um, there was also, I forgot about it, but there was a whole development of the phaser four-stroke, too, right in the middle of that, in between the RX-1, the Vector, and then the uh, the phaser. So there was a lot of development that was coming out of Yamaha at the time. I think uh, for a 10-year stretch, I think we had sled of the year five years out of those 10. So there was a lot of new product development coming out. A lot of it was obviously driven by the uh, four-stroke switch. Well, when we um, when we start, we we decided to go um, and build the the rough trail enthusiast uh, market up for Yamaha. Uh, there was the Phaser, then there was the uh, the FX or the RX Nitro, which was basically um, you know more aggressive seating and the higher handlebars and things like that. Then we went to the um, to the whole Nitro chassis, which Jim was involved with his team, and also of course the guys from Japan. On developing, so we went um, put together a team, uh, uh, hired uh, um, the company to work with. Well, that was Boss Racing. They had uh, um, uh, r- racing setup. They they provided the uh, the teamwork, um, and then we divide, uh, developed the sleds. Uh, we actually raced the first uh, weekend, I believe, uh, or maybe two races on the uh, prototypes that were built out of R&D uh, Monaco, 
And then we went with introducing the FX Nitro and Brainerd, um, which was based on the pre-production sled of the Nitro we were going to introduce the next year. And that was really uh, the result of the work that, uh, that Jim did, the team did, uh, Tim Nakano, the guys in Japan, um, Jesse Strang, uh, those guys, uh, we, you know, we've been back and forth to Japan and doing rider, rider ergonomics and things like that. And, uh, and race that sled, which was basically a stock nitro chassis and, uh, pretty much a, a standard engine. Um, not, not, uh, they're basically the, 130 horsepower engine that uh, came with the nitro that next year. Um, then as the project went through, um, we started to do more and more chassis development. Uh, we worked with uh, Terry Wall up at uh, Wall Brothers to, to uh, modify the, the production chassis, build the special parts. Mike Carver out of Carver Performance was involved um, with Boss Racing. And then we went with... Uh, um, Switch gears. We went with Andre Loren out of Canada, and uh, Ian Hayden and Steve Taylor. Um, of course, Yuji Nakazawa was also racing out of uh, R&D Manaqua, um, and uh, running four strokes. The engines got more and uh, more and more. Uh, basically, working on throttle response. We had plenty of power. The whole goal was to work on throttle response. The engine. Um, was completely under Yamaha Japan's uh, forte. They were the ones that were building that engine, and, and everybody that drove that sled just absolutely loved the engine. Yeah. Um, eventually, we, we developed the chassis all through the season uh, at that come. Uh, the final year, we, we hooked up with Randy Karpik and then also Gerard Karpik up at Fast. Uh, we built uh, that last sled that we built was phenomenal, I believe. Um, the engine was super. It had six-port uh, fuel injection, um, you know, was really well-built. Well, the throttle response was phenomenal. The chassis was, was excellent, and uh, we basically worked through for that. Uh, the hardest part there was to get the, the the top riders at the time. A lot of them, obviously, you know, the, especially in Stokecross, the rider is, you know, what, 80% of the of your output. And uh, we had some great riders. Ian Hayden put us on the podium. Of course, uh, uh, Robbie Malinowski won on Brainerd and, and had uh, plenty of chances to win in Lake at Eagle River and things like that. Um, but uh, the chassis pretty much got better and better and better. The engine got better and better. But eventually, we um, the industry went more towards two strokes. The regulations were going away from these full mods and were going to be based on production chassis. And um, you know we we dropped out of snowcross and they went uh, cross country racing after that. At that time in in uh, 2009, that was when when I retired from Yamaha and uh, went off to to Walboro. Yeah, it was a great run. Uh, racing is racing is uh, a lot of hours, but man, it it's uh, it sure is sure is uh, fun. Jim can attest to that too. He's put in a ton of hours working with the race guys he's developed a lot of phenomenal he's worked with a lot of phenomenal racers and has a lot of victories and yeah it does uh really really uh once you work on that it's hard to 
it's hard to go back to a regular nine to five job. <laughs> I, I, I bet you, you, you two were pretty busy. I, I think everybody remembers that picture of uh, you, uh, you, Greg, when uh, when Robbie won that uh, that race uh, at uh, at Brainerd. Uh, I, th- I thought you were going to jump out of your boots there. Uh, in, in all the photos and the, and, and the video there, <laughs> you're a pretty excited dude. <laughs> I, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was phenomenal. I, I remember one picture that everybody was smiling and laughing and except for uh, Tom Rager and oh. those are the only two guys that were, yeah. because we bumped them off the podium. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, um, yeah. Uh, so, so uh, Yamaha pulled out of Snowcross, and and, and, and for obvious reasons, uh, were, were you guys dis- was, was, do you think Yamaha was disappointed um, that the other manufacturers uh, chose to continue to uh, develop their two strokes um, in in racing? Uh, you know, was there any hard feelings uh, about that? Do you think um, you know for uh, and, and we're kind of looking at uh, currently uh, and, and past. Uh, the two strokes are now dominant, um, but do you think uh, Yamaha is disappointed that uh, they, they went that direction and maybe, maybe get, get the other manufacturers to uh, maybe develop a, a, a four-stroke for racing versus the uh, the two strokes that they have now? Well, uh, Gord, I think the thing is, is okay, good. All right, Jim, good. Go for it. <laughs> well, because we've been through it. Uh, Yamaha's been through it uh, um, kind of uh, numerous times before the Snowcross uh, plan changed or race direction changed. So uh, we introduced the VMAX 4. Formula 3 class was developed, and um, we ran one year, and then they changed the rules that uh, – it could no. It had to be a 600 cc, and um, so Yamaha's been, you know, kind of uh, pushed out of a class, um, you know, previously. So we had some, we had some taste for that, and and at, at first year, you know, you're kind of disappointed and uh, um, a, a little upset. Um, but the, you know, if it's good for the sport and good for the industry. Um, Yamaha turned the cheek uh, willingly, and and we would move on. Um, uh, so I, I think that was uh, that's Yamaha's uh, gracefulness or uh, willingness to do the right thing um, for the industry. Um, so we we experienced that before. So when the Snowcross thing uh, occurred. Um, I think we already been down that road, and uh, it was kind of easy to understand, maybe not to accept. Um, and for Greg, it was probably a, a little bit more difficult. Um, but Greg, I, I'll stop there. <laughs> all right, Jim. I, I think from, from uh, if you want to go all the way back to when when Yamaha was looking at uh, developing four strokes. Um, Remember when I said that the regulations were set that basically it was going to be extremely hard for two strokes to meet the third level of the proposed EPA regulations? Well, that never became hap- that never happened. The industry shrunk enough so that obviously it was easy to make the case that snowmobiles don't pollute as much for smog in California as people thought. That's just a little tongue in cheek, but anyway. <laughs> um, so those regu- those regulations never really. 
uh, got put to the onerous level that they had first been proposed. But uh, going going uh, to talking about what the other brands did, um, every company builds what they can build, and that's their strength. And they're and they're all individual companies, so every company looks after what's in their wheelhouse to build. And um, you know, Four Strokes isn't a strong wheelhouse for for some of the other brands, and and uh, so. You know, can you force them to make two stroke or four strokes? Well, no, unless regulations are there, and even that would have been pretty ugly. So um, I think that that the development that the two strokes have gone through um, to meet to meet the emission regulations, and now it looks like they're also working on on uh, getting a better life out of them. Um, you know, it, it's. Advantages for four strokes and advantages for two strokes. There's two different uh, camps there, and of course, uh, that's what makes makes the industry so interesting. So, Polaris builds what they can build, what they engineer and, and build. So does Bombardier, and also Articat and Yamaha. So, um, each company has their strengths and weaknesses. I think, uh, um, in the grand scheme of things, I think the Yamaha is and building a, a stellar machine, especially for people that, that want to put on a ton of miles that like the four-stroke um, difference. I I mean, I remember talking to Jim about, you know, two-strokes versus four-strokes back, you know, 12, 15 years ago when they were first talking about trying to build performance four-strokes. Man, it was going to be hard to imagine. But then also I remember after we were riding uh, the four-strokes around, you could physically smell if somebody was on a two-stroke on the trail ahead of you. So you really, uh, I got converted to the four-strokes pretty quick. As far as racing goes, racing is an important part of the industry. Uh, it's just, it's, it builds uh, enthusiasm among the dealers, among the customers, pride of ownership. That part, I think, is, is critical to the industry. Unfortunately, when it came to four-strokes and you know, Yamaha was spending a lot of money on those, uh, you know, building three or four or five sleds for these top racers, and you know that's a hard uh, that's a hard business model for everybody to to uh, to do it. So, the other companies wanted to build a few hundred of the rate of the stock racers and then turn them into mod racers. I can't uh, I can't say that was a bad business decision for them. I think it's. It's the one thing that's kept racing going. Even so, it's it's tough to see the the um, the shrinkage of the market back from when you know there was two hundred fifty thousand sleds sold in North America. Now it's uh, you know it's cut in half or more. So that part obviously means changes has to have to to happen. Do you ever do you ever see a day when? Um there, there will be more four strokes from the manufacturers. I mean, the, the other manufacturers uh, uh, seem to be sticking to their guns and, and trying to develop a clean two strokes. Do you ever see a, a day in the near future where um, the industry might become more four strokes or maybe two strokes? Uh, I mean, you, you look at the motorcycle uh, industry; uh, it, it's 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 all four stroke. Um, there's there's. There's almost no reason why they shouldn't follow that pattern, or, or should they? That's the regulations, Gordon. I don't. Uh, the regulations drive a lot of that. Yep. 
do you think the regulations, the, the EPA kind of softened up the, uh, the rules? Well, for sure, the EPA didn't come out with the, with the final proposed level of the EPA. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, and there's two things that are happening in the snowmobile industry. One is the emissions rules have been set for a long time, and they were set on emission levels and production quantities of two strokes. And um, and with the snowmobile industry's current position, the uh, the quantities are uh, are still low, so that allows opportunities for the two-stroke to continue. And um, and you know, I think there's going to be both sides to that. Uh, uh, to that, there's going to be people that want four strokes, and there's always going to be people that want two strokes. So I think for the manufacturers uh, uh, currently. Uh, Yamaha is committed to the four-stroke, and uh, Arcat is dabbling in both, uh, covering both spaces. Uh, so I, I think that's going to continue. Um, and in the motorcycle industry, um, those emissions were a lot uh, tougher, and it's a lot larger industry. So they, they're, they're being dealt a completely different hand than the snowmobile industry. Right, Greg? Yeah, you're, you're right, Jim. I think, um, you know, three of the four brands make four-strokes. You've got Bombardier, they've got a strong hand in four-strokes. Articat does, and Yamaha's 100%. So um, there's there's a customer base for both, both uh, directions. Um, as Jim said, though, when it comes to on-road emissions, uh, that part is really, uh, you know, Dedicated very directed by the, uh, the by the Clean Air Act, in, mainly in Europe and in uh, in U.S. in North America. So um, we don't have that regulatory driver when it comes to snowmobiles because the market's so small. So that part of it, you know, the um, the two strokes have gotten a lot better from from back in uh, 15 years ago, but so are the four strokes. So you know the Gord, you've driven, I believe you've driven the, the turbocharged uh, Articat or Yamaha, and I think mm -hmm. that, from what I hear, that's quite a piece of work. Yeah. So there's room yeah. for both. Yeah, the, new, the brand new and the Sidewinder, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a machine. It's, uh, it's scary fast. I'll, I'll just... Uh, I uh, can't, can't give away my, my reports to, uh, all, all just yet, but, uh, yeah, we did have an opportunity to uh, try the new ones. And, uh, Greg, you're going to have to uh, call Yamaha up and, and, and get, one, uh, get one of those uh, because they're, uh, they're, they're, they're quite a machine. <laughs> and, again, Yamaha just pulls it out of, every, just, just pulls it out of nowhere and, uh, and comes up with this uh, crazy, crazy fast machine. So, um, um so, so, and, and let's well, Gord, Gord, that story be Gord, that story behind the sideliner. If you got more time, there's oh, yeah. a little bit of a story behind that. Um, they've been working on the turbocharged Yamahas for how many years? Uh, probably 15 years. I know there was uh, uh, quite a bit of work done on that uh, in R and D, um, and finally, it was great to see it to see it happen. So it it wasn't just pulled out of a hat. It was a, a strong development project for many, many years, different iterations built. Um, 
So, no, it might seem like Yamaha surprises people, but uh, they do work on things for many years. I, I've talked to guys that have built uh, um, prototype snowmobiles with four strokes with leaf springs. Uh, we built them at R&D with TSS, with trailing arms and A-arms. So, um Yamaha's been working on the four-stroke for a long time in snowmobile application and also uh, the turbos for, for quite a few years before it comes into production. So yeah, that's we, one of the strengths of Yamaha is that they really uh, do, the, do the homework. Yeah, what, I think what, what surprises me the most now is just how they can get that package into, uh, into a chassis now and make it so clean and, and uh you know, and, and basically bulletproof now. Uh, it's that that always surprised me the most that uh, you know they can they can put that package together in in, in a snowmobile. <laughs> you know, but uh, um, it's, it's a talking. Yeah, Gord, you can't you, Gord, you can't believe you can't believe how many turbo RX ones and uh, nitros and uh, things that we. We drove over the years. Uh, I've I've seen plastic uh, shrouds just just melt over the motor, and uh, so um, this final uh, when they enter when they enter the market, it's going to be right. The heat the heating issues, the fit and finish, and uh, uh, the calibration is absolutely going to be right because they tried it so many years before. And of course, they didn't come out with it because they had limitations. And uh, so, when they introduce it, you can kind of guarantee it's going to be right. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- talking about the new, the new chassis and the new era with uh, Yamaha. Now, now, both of you guys are retired, and uh, you, you know, you can. I guess you can kind of talk about it. But um, let, let, you, you, your guys' opinions of the uh, the, the venture with um, with Articat, uh are you guys disappointed uh, in it? Because you guys, I mean, you must have loved doing all the R and D for all the uh, all the Japanese sleds and stuff like that. Are you are you disappointed now with uh, the direction Yamaha has taken with uh, partnership with uh, building the chassis uh, from another manufacturer, or uh, um, you know, you, you 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 approve of the uh, of it? I'll let Greg go first. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Um, I think it's a, it's a good thing. I think, uh, um, like I said, because the, the brands build to their strengths, and uh, I think the joint partnership between uh, Yamaha and Articat in that it created a lot of excitement, created a lot of sales, uh, re- revitalized the brand back when the dollar yen was really difficult for Yamaha to be competitive building in Japan. And it helped in their new product development. So um, that's also been a long time talked about as far as the engine supply. Um, I know uh, Jim was involved with talking to uh, different uh, uh, business plans on on how to expand our snowmobile sales, and 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 I was involved on some of that also on uh, looking at who to partnership with um, as as the business plans change, this was done, I'm talking like 15 years ago. Um, of course, none of those came to fruition, but eventually the timing was right. It was uh, something that, that's good for both brands. It's good for both dealerships. Uh, it's good for both customers. And and frankly, um, I believe that Yamaha is going to learn, has learned a lot from Articat 
on their strengths. And I think Cardicats learned a lot from Yamaha, from from the Yamaha strength. So um, it does help both both brands, I believe. And uh, I think it's a it's been a win win for them. I, I don't have any uh, any problems with uh, with joint partnerships. I mean, it happens all the time in automotive. It happens all the time in in other brands. So. Uh, uh, in other products, so yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's been really good. Uh, yeah. It's been good for the for the industry. Yeah, Jim. Jim, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I was initially involved in the uh, in the process, and uh, uh, this wasn't uh, an upper management. Uh, uh, Direction at the time we were working with Articat, it was uh, 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 a small group of uh, product planning engineering guys, and the discussion started with mid-level mid, mid people at uh, at uh, Yamaha and Articat, and uh, and it grew, and uh, it, it took a direction maybe not a hundred percent what everyone thought it was when the initial discussion was started. Um, but no, I am a hundred percent behind it. I think it's the uh, it was the best way to keep Yamaha um, in the snowmobile business with new product on a on a, on the schedule that's needed for this industry because uh, yeah. Yamaha is uh, is, uh, is slow to respond. So I, I think this is a, a great uh, a combination. And like Greg said, it's done in other industries. Um, this is a small industry, but um, I think it's well fitted for the industry because there's uh, two different mindsets between uh, Articat and uh, Yamaha and um, in the process. But uh, it definitely grew together, and, uh, yeah, I, I hope it continues to go. I'm, I'm fully behind it. Yeah. Um uh, a question you may be able to answer, uh, or, or may not be: What uh, do, do you see more engine supply uh, coming from uh, out of Yamaha? And uh, I guess a lot of a lot of questions. A lot, a lot of people have asked this question, and I'll, I'll throw it out to you two. Um, but um, do you see one of the manufacturers going away? Uh, I don't. I don't think one of them will go away for sure. I think uh, there's room for uh, for everybody, um, and I don't know what the plans are, uh, and I don't want to speculate. Um, but I, there's a commitment for Yamaha, um, and if the production quantity is right and the production uh, longevity is there, uh, I don't see Yamaha stepping away from developing engines for uh, both brands. Um, uh, it's all based on getting a return on your investment. So uh, I think if there's a uh, a new engine developed, uh, it would have to go to both brands to meet the uh, uh, to the to meet the investment. Um, so yeah, I I think uh, they're all going to do well, and uh, um, there's going to be a lot more similarities if new engines are developed. Developed, they're both going to have them. Yeah. Okay, guys. Uh, I guess we, we can st- we can start to wrap this up, but uh, I, w- I want to pose a couple questions to you, uh, and, uh, and I'll, I'll let you both answer. Um, 
your most your favorite sled that Yamaha ever produced, and also the um, your probably your favorite or um, most exciting driver or R and D driver uh, that Yamaha ever uh, ever had, and uh, I'll, I'll let you both answer uh, answer that those, those that questions. Who wants to go first? <laughs> go ahead, Jim. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll say 700 SX. Uh, oh, that would be my kind of my favorite snowmobile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I would say uh, probably the most exciting driver is uh, Steve Hool. Um and the most winningest driver would be Tim Bender, but uh, and Jim Morgan. But uh, Steve Hool's uh, back on his. Uh, Phaser open sled at Eagle or at uh, Thief River Falls. Uh, I'll never forget this day. He started. He jumped on the on the flag. So they turned him around backwards, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he took off. He with a drag. Uh, the tr- flag dropped. He took off. I don't know how he got that sled turned around so quick. And he was in the in the corner first on his side. And he just drove his elbow into the ice and put the sled back on its skis. I mean, I've never seen. He was in such good shape, and he had uh, such good eye and hand coordination. Uh, yeah, Steve Hool would be, uh, yeah, he could pull off some incredible, incredible things. So, yeah, Steve Hool would be the guy. Yeah. Okay, Greg? Greg? So, uh, uh, Jim, was that the, that sled that was built over at TNS Racing that Steve was running at that time? No, that one was uh, uh, the Steve Bender, built the with. Uh, uh, huh? No, this was a. Uh, uh, ah, so okay. We had three different. Uh, we had three different sleds. We had uh, Guy Uselbinger's uh, steel tube chassis. Then we had Steve Hool's all uh, aluminum. Everything was aluminum design. And then Tim ran a uh, uh, modified, uh, extremely modified stock chassis. So this was Steve's, uh, Steve Hool's all in aluminum chassis sled with Hans Ader built with them. Wow. Okay. Uh, I would say... Um the sled that I that I probably really really liked was the Exciter SX that Ochon built, or he was the project manager on that one. That was the best SX, or that was the best Exciter. It was the last year, but that's usually the way things go. But that that was a really good Exciter. I remember that one uh, riding that up in uh, Chevette's. That was a that was a fun sled. And then the uh, like Jim said, the the uh, seven hundred SX. And then the uh, the SRX, the first year of the SRX. Those are all really uh, those are fun years uh, riding those those sleds. Um, uh, my, hey, Greg. I would Greg, say I agree that. With uh, the Exciter SX. Uh, you know, that something? That was the best sled. It had the yeah, flat side carburetors and the. And the yeah, and the and the struts, the struts with the hydraulic dampers on the on the bottom cushioning, and yeah, that was a neat sled. Um, yeah, can you imagine if that would have came out first? The, 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 <laughs> rock, 
Yeah, that's what I said. Is that if the exciter SX would have been our the first uh, exciter, then I think uh, Polaris and Arctic would still be hurting. <laughs> <laughs> and what, who, who you got for your favorite um, favorite? For the, for, um, I think for the for the riders, I think uh, um, I'll I'll go into the the um, snowcross side. I think Robbie Malinowski was, uh, he was so driven and he knew he could, he could win. That was fun that year. But then also Ian Hayden did a really good job for us as we did more and more development uh, throughout the years. So I like those guys, but uh, as far as the, as the early racers, um, I liked, uh, you know, Tim Bender, obviously um, he was, uh, he was always fun to watch. So, yeah, I agree that uh, there's been some great uh, guys wearing Yamaha leathers throughout the years. Yeah. So, okay, guys, uh, I guess we could r- r- wrap it up. I know you guys are pretty busy, but it was uh, it was it was great uh, going uh, going back and, and, and chatting with you guys. Uh, um, let's uh, let, let's hear about what you what, again what you guys are uh, are, are doing now, and if uh, in, in Jim's case, if you got a company, let's uh, let's hear about it and some some contact information and uh, your chance to do to uh, plug your businesses or uh, or leisure. In Greg's uh, Greg's case, so I'll let uh, I'll let uh, Jim go go first. Uh, Jim Jim, your your, your company and, uh, and what what you do, and uh, maybe uh, so sell your company and your and your uh, get your wife busy. Okay, okay. Uh, the name the name of the company is Test Incorporated, and um, uh, we've been around for twenty years. Um, my wife and myself started the business. Uh, uh, we're located in Hazelhurst, Wisconsin, up near Monaco, about uh, 60 miles north of Wausau. Um, some of our clients are um, uh, Camelplast or Campso, uh, Harley-Davidson, um, Articat, KTM, uh, Yamaha, and those are probably the core companies that we we either are currently doing business with or we have done business with. Uh, um, I guess right now we're doing a lot more marketing and uh, and some engineering work. But uh, um, one of our core companies is is absolutely uh, uh, Camso. Uh, we're doing a lot of work with them, and uh, and actually right now we are doing a lot of work with Harley Davidson as well. Yeah, and, and what what exactly are, are are you doing as for 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 your business? What's your core business? Our core business is, is uh, uh, trade shows and um, uh, product demonstrations. So um, uh, for Campso, what we do for them is uh, uh, we do thirty shows in the U.S. and we help develop the market for the ATV track system. ATV UTV track system. So we had that program for about. They introduced it. We introduced it. They had a direction. Um, we took that direction and developed, developed into uh, the way we felt the market was going to be based on the initial uh, our initial contacts uh, in the industry. And uh, so we developed the uh, help develop the market for uh, Cancel. Um, and Harley Davidson, we do a lot of uh, bike bike building and uh, and photo shoot work. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, and uh, yeah, Articat is a lot of product demonstrations. Yeah. Okay, you got some contact information? Yeah. Uh, email address and uh, street address, okay? Yep, absolutely. Fire away. Okay. Okay, it's uh, J K E D I N G E R at Test Inc. hyphen USA.com. Uh, street address is 6843 Highway 51, Hazelhurst, Wisconsin, A4531. And phone number? 715-892-1437 is my cell phone. Okay, great. So if anybody uh, office needs... phone is 715. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so if any, yeah, carry, uh, continue with your office number. Yeah, seven one five three five eight three nine two nine. Great, awesome. And uh, Greg, what are you what are you doing now uh, <laughs> for yourself? <laughs> well, not near as exciting as Jim, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm uh, I've been uh, I, I moved back uh, to Minnesota and then uh, traveling quite a bit, uh, enjoying uh, family life with my uh, daughters live at home and and um, of course my wife. And we've been, uh, I've got some, my folks are 97 and 95 still living at home, so I've been able to help them quite a bit, and uh, Cindy and I, and we've been enjoying that life. So things are pretty good. There is pretty good life after Yamaha. That's good. That's awesome. Well, Jim and, uh, and Greg, I really appreciate uh, you, you talking with us. It was uh, it was uh, great uh, hearing about the the old racing days, and also a, a, a lot of a, a lot of Yamaha talk and the development uh, talk uh, that uh, I, I know uh, people will be interested to, to, to hear about because uh, uh, you know you don't often hear about uh, what goes on behind the scenes uh, for developing their their uh, their snowmobile. So it was uh, it was really great talking to you too, and. Um, I wish you all uh, best, the best, and uh, thank you very much for uh, for talking with us today. Thanks, Gordon. You're welcome. Take care, guys. Thanks. Yep. Take yep. care. Okay. Bye. And that concludes this episode of the Snowmobile Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it was great talking to uh, Jim uh, Kenniger and uh, and uh, Greg Marrier uh, from Yamaha Motor US, and. Um, Remember, you can uh, check out all the uh, other podcasts, uh, all my other uh, interviews on uh, the Snowmobile Podcast Facebook page. Um, subscribe on iTunes and follow on SoundCloud. Uh, those are my two platforms. Uh, one's uh, better, obviously, for uh, Apple devices and one's uh, uh, better for, uh, for uh, Android users. So I've covered you, uh, covered you both uh, as much as I can. So... Um, and uh, let's see, yeah, the Facebook page, uh, um, f- um, like me on uh, on the Snowmobile Podcast Facebook page. So uh, we will talk to you soon. I got uh, a couple of shows coming up and uh, uh, a couple of riders coming up that I, I think you'll uh, you'll like. So uh, until next time, this is Gordon Van from Snowmobile Podcast. Mm-hmm.